everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Stigma podcast. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and in today's episode, we will be discussing mindfulness. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Alexander Kermi, who is a psychiatrist from Malta. After completing his medical training at the University of Malta, he completed his core psychiatric training in SLAM in 2019. That's South London and Maudsley. And he's also a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. Now, aside from adult psychiatry, Dr. Kermi has special interests in psychotherapy, mindfulness meditation, and medical education. He's also the podcast host of Maudsley Learning Podcast and a training psychiatrist at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Today, we'll be discussing what mindfulness is, mindfulness-based therapies, and how it can be incorporated and applied into our lives. Dr. Kermi, welcome, and a big, big thank you to you for being here today. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. I want to start off with the term mindfulness itself, because um, it can be explained more or less differently by different people. Um, some say that it's awareness, some say present or being non-judgmental. So I'd like to start off by knowing what does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah, I would say mindfulness has become one of those terms that's thrown around a lot nowadays, right? Yeah. And it seems to mean different things to different people. I kind of compare it like the word energy. People use that word very loosely in different contexts. Mm. And I like to think of mindfulness in, in the Buddhist sense. So really, mindfulness meditation and the philosophy that's built around that comes from Buddhism. And originally in, in Buddhism, mm -hmm. it was referred to as Vipassana, which means insight. So the idea was that mindfulness meditation could be a way that someone could learn about their own psyche, about their own conscious experience from a first-person point of view, as opposed to from a third-person point of view. So we're used mm. to neuroscience, right? How, how we can observe from the outside what, what's happening in the brain. But mindfulness is obviously different. It's someone studying their own experience, and that includes thoughts, emotions, physical sensations very, very closely to come to some important insights. So that's why it's mm -hmm. called insight med meditation. Because funnily enough, even though we're, we kind of ride around in our consciousness all day, we don't study it very closely. And so there's, there's a huge lack of self-awareness, I think, about the nature of our consciousness, the nature of our mm -hmm. mental processes. And that leads to a lot of unnecessary suffering, which can get, you know, can be suffering, everyday suffering that most people, all people go through. But in the extreme it can lend itself to, I think, quite extreme forms of suffering, what you could call mm -hmm. mental disorders, mental health conditions. Certainly, they can be not having awareness of these, these psychological processes can definitely contribute a huge amount to what we would call mental health conditions, I believe. Wow. That's so interesting you say that about this self-awareness and our own consciousness, because um, there's a term referred to as ego death, which, ironically, the loss of the mm. sense of self and consciousness actually kind of does the opposite effect, right? It has a therapeutic benefit for us. So although it's not in a similar context, but mm -hmm. it's, it's just interesting how the phenomena of the self can, can, be, can be applied differently and can be looked at mm -hmm. 
um, in, in different ways. Yeah, it depends. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. It depends. Self is another one of those words that's mm-hmm. thrown around a lot. And so it, it's very important to be aware it can mean different things yeah. in different contexts. In this sense, let's refer to the self or the ego, the narrative that you have about exactly. your life. So I have my narrative. You know, I'm 32 years old. I'm a mental health professional. I do this, that or the other. To some extent, that is mm. fictional. It's a it's a story. It's a narrative that's weaved together. That doesn't make it bad or not useful. It's very useful right. to have that narrative because it simplifies reality, which is very, very complicated. So we need to have this ego, I think. This is my personal view is we need mm. to have an ego. But what's the problem arises when we become too identified with our ego, we Absolutely. fall in love with it, or we're engaged in self-loathing with it because we see it as reality. Whereas it's important to have experiences where you can dip outside of your ego and at least have some sense that it is to some degree fictional. It, it has that therapeutic effect. And there are lots of different activities mm. that can cause that ego dissolution mm. in different ways. Like meditation can cause it. Being really engaged, being in a flow state right. can cause it. Psychedelics can cause it. Religious experiences can cause it. And they, they, they give you that bit of a break and that perspective to say, okay, you know, I am, I value myself and there are these things about myself that I like and I think about myself but also you know it's just it's just it's a it's an idea that's helpful to ride around in the world it's not everything it's not the totality of reality you know wow that's so so beautifully said and it really ties back to mindfulness because we need to have a sense or self-identity that self-awareness comes in on trying to find that balance but I'm curious to know how you actually got into mindfulness as a psychiatrist was it a part of your teaching or was this something personal or individual to you funnily enough i started practicing mindfulness before i started Mm. psychiatry training it was in a year between my second junior doctor and psychiatry in what we call an fy3 year which was also a year of taking perspective and it was very much a year of trying new things and meditation was something i had heard a lot about but i had never tried I, when I was younger, I was very scientific rationalist in my orientation. And so meditation didn't naturally appeal to me as something worth doing. But during this year, when I was trying different things, I started to hear people who I respect a lot and also who are very scientifically mm-hmm. minded talk about meditation. And these are people like right. Sam Harris, uh, Dan Harris, among other people. And so I thought, why not experiment with it? So I used headspace Love I, that think, app. <laughs> I think is a very good app for learning the fundamentals yeah and tried it for a couple of weeks and then started to, to notice that i was having interesting experiences like feeling very very calm for instance or just feeling a drop in anxiety and then i the more i did it the more i realized that if i you know i was i was doing medical work mm-hmm. still at the time and i i realized that there would there would be this gap between a stressful experience and my emotional response so something that would ha- something would happen that would i would normally expect to have an immediate very negative emotional mm-hmm. response and slowly slowly there started to be this gap where i wasn't so reactive wow. i was a little bit detached in a very helpful way from the stresses that i was experiencing on a day-to-day basis and then you just start to realize how it can, you know, I think mindfulness at its most superficial, and I don't mean in a bad way, but at its most superficial, it's just 
stress reliever. It can help you relax, you know, if you want to do your mm-hmm. five minutes a day. But the deeper you go with it, the more you like it radically changes your view of life. Which is why I think it's a problem that it's been so divorced from Buddhist philosophy and that has it has become so diluted. I agree. I actually love that you, you brought up Headspace because I used to use it as well. But unfortunately for me, I never continued. Um, so, But n- now you've put it under my radar again. But honestly, the time that I was using the Headspace app is one of the times where I felt most grounded. And I also used it for sleep, which also did a lot of wonders for me. And even their sleep guided meditations were based on kind of mindfulness techniques, a lot of them. So I do agree that is a great app. As for your second point, I feel the same way because a lot of, I think even practitioners, they the way they take mindfulness, they try to westernize it in a way. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, mindfulness-based therapies, but a lot of the um, conversations around it say that we've taken out to make it less, you know, mystical or less spiritual and make it more empirical, you know, scientific, etc. The core of mindfulness is to be connected to oneself, but also your surroundings and, you know, the universe as a whole. I think it's interesting what you said. Should we tackle these things from a spiritual mm. perspective, a scientific perspective or both? I, my general inclination would be both because one one debate that's commonly had in philosophy is can you even perform any kind of scientific inquiry before you have an a priori system of values that's already been delineated? So before you do any kind of science, some would argue mm-hmm. you already have to decide what you care about. And then how how the hell do you decide what you care about? And that's, to some degree, if you take an evolutionary perspective, I think it is baked into our nature. But then I also think to some degree, we get to decide what we care about. And maybe what we care about is some some fusion of the two, of our nature, and then what, at some point in our lives, because of our different experiences, we decide is really important. So I, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, I think you need you need a system of values before you, you perform science. And, and is that system of values and coming to the conclusion what your system of values is, is that not some mm. kind of spiritual endeavor? Again, this is something I'm not entirely decided on, but that's kind of the mm. way I... So you're basically saying that anything that you strongly believe in somehow has some form of like like a bigger picture? Well, it can do. Yeah, it can. can If you're interested in what, in the transcendent, right. you know, in, if you're, and if you remain humble about the degree to which your perception of reality is very limited, you know, there's there's a limit to what we can receive. We're, we're, there are things that remain mm. very, very mysterious to us. Then that means that all of your scientific inquiry has to be nested within that sort of basic humility, humility about the mysteriousness mm. of things. Very I interesting. So do you, do you meditate or practice mindfulness? Is that something that's part of your daily routine? Yeah, I would say I do 10 minutes of mindfulness most days. That's that's how it works mm. into my and routine. And what, what are the, some of the most like, profound impacts do you see in your life? Because I'm speaking to you right now. And although we're behind a computer, there is this sense of calmness to you. And even when I listen to your episodes, um, I love listening to you as well, because there is this, you can almost hear the 
Yeah, I think calmness is is the correct word. I hear a for, some form of calmness to you, which I definitely don't have because I'm always so hectic <laughs> and I'm always in a rush <laughs> and I feel you're very patient. Do you think this is something to do with mindfulness or has this always been your personality? I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I apologize, by the way, that I'm yeah, projecting yeah. a form of quality onto you that may not be your quality, but it's just an observation. Oh, please project away. It's fine. I, I would, I would mm. say people have always said that I'm very calm. I do think that uh, internally it's not always as calm as it appears, but I also think that mindfulness, both just both the practice itself and the more intellectual philosophical insights have made me a calmer and more patient person you asked sort of what are the more profound insights i've gotten from meditation and it's interesting because the insights i've gotten from meditation have changed my my life in profound ways but they're very Mm -hmm. meditation 101 insights if you know what i mean so insights people Mm -hmm. who meditate regularly get but they have impacted me very profoundly so one of them, probably the biggest one is, and Sam Harris talks a lot about this, is meditation helps you realize to degree, the degree to which mm. you're constantly lost in thought, that there's an inner monologue of thought. And you can be having some of the most beautiful or interesting experiences in the world or meaningful experiences. But ultimately, if you're lost in a veil mm. of thought, if you can't be present, they might as well not be happening. I, I like to say something along the mm-hmm. lines of, you know, you could be on a beach in Thailand, but if you're worrying about an argument you had five years ago, you might as well not be on a beach in Thailand, you know? So the first thing is that meditation helps you realize there's a constant monologue of thoughts that's serving as a barrier between you and whatever's happening around you. You realize when you meditate that these thoughts just pop into your head spontaneously. You don't, unless you're actively thinking, which you can do brainstorming or whatever, you don't call your mm-hmm. thoughts forward right. into consciousness. They kind of just appear from the ether. They're often highly irrational. They're often highly unhelpful. They're often thoughts like, you're no good. You know, these yeah. thoughts that, that you can the imagine. Cognitive distortions. Someone, some stereotypical movie character saying to the hero, yeah, yeah, you could call them a cognitive distortion is another word you could use. But they're, they're just often very, very unhelpful. But because we're not aware that we're lost mm. in thoughts, we over-identify with them. And often we're not we're not even conscious that the thoughts are happening, but what we're left with is the emotional mm. residue, the shame, the guilt, the anger. So similarly, not meditation makes you not only aware of the inner monologue of thoughts, but the constant mm. shifting emotional climate that you're subject to. And just like thoughts, emotions often arise spontaneously, sometimes as an obvious trigger, sometimes there isn't. I like to think, I like to triage emotions, by which I mean, as you become more aware of the emotions that you're experiencing, you can start to triage them in terms of how important are they to act on, how relevant are they. Like you might feel guilty, for instance, without there being really a need for you to feel guilty. But sometimes you feel guilty and it's appropriate. So I like to do that triage where you think, is this a thought that's substantial? That's something I need to act on? Because very often emotions are signals Mm. about something we need to act on. Often they're they're residues from the past or from unhelpful thoughts, as I described. So having that emotional awareness can be the first step then to allow you to triage your emotions. 
another th- another insight right. again this is a meditation 101 right. but very profound for me is there's always a state there's always a state of calm you can access in the present that you don't need to i think we're conditioned especially in the west to be like you can mm-hmm. be happy when you get the thing i'll be happy when i get the beer after work i'll be happy when i date the person i really want to date i'll be happy right. when i get x amount of money cause and there's a very we, we're conditioned to think there's a very cause and effect relationship between our happiness and our life circumstances but actually some of my happiest moments have been paying attention to my breathing wow. funnily enough and it's very mysterious like i don't claim to understand it but that's there's something about getting a di- divorcing yourself from the constant needs and desires mm. of everyday life that is very very calming and can make you very happy i mean and, and obviously this is exactly what is talked about in buddhism right so the first noble truth of buddhism to life absolutely. is suffering so and i and i and i and i i i find that people I really, really respond well to that if you say actually life is really difficult yeah people are like oh thank you someone's because if you said life was awesome people are like oh this then why is my life not awesome but if you say life is suffering then everyone's kind of like okay now there's context so the first noble truth is life is suffering the second one is that suffering is caused by desire yeah essentially and then the third and the fourth ones are there, there are parts you can take to detaching your desire, detaching from your desires and therefore alleviating your, your suffering. And that's, that's a lot of what meditation is. Wow. Honestly. I, I mean, there, there, are, there are others. <laughs> there are others. I didn't even get through all of them. And maybe just the yeah. last one is that, again, there are loads, but the last one I mentioned is that you can train yourself to be non-judgmental mm. to whatever's happening around you. And I'm, I like to think of myself as a pretty strategic person. Like I like to think about my life strategically and giving you that, getting that detachment where you're not at the whim, the immediate whim of everything that's happening, where you have to have an, a negative or a positive emotional reaction, but you can get a bit of perspective and a bit of breathing room can make you much more effective operating in, in the world. Wow life is suffering. I think weirdly enough, I think I was a very existential little kid, but life is suffering was something that it's kind of been my motto since I was, I think, 13, 14 years old. And uh, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, I was a very religious kid, mm-hmm. not so much anymore. Um, but anyway, I think life is suffering is just, it, it gives you the sort of acceptance that what comes to your life, whether good or mm-hmm. bad, is it's a part of, it's the part of the journey. Right. And when you accept that, you also accept this truth, um, that I always say that we don't belong in this world and that's why we suffer. It's because we're not supposed to be here. And I think that acceptance within myself always makes Mm -hmm. me comfortable thinking that this is just a part of my journey, but it's not where I'll be eternally. (laughs) And, and, and that, Mm -hmm. That kind of gives that comfort. The second thing I wanted to point out was you mentioned about being mindful of your unhelpful thoughts. But what came to my mind was CBT, though, Mm -hmm. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, in in terms of like being identifying, you know, your thoughts, your emotions, and then kind of changing that. It made me think of like the Mm -hmm. cross buns. Would you say there's some form of um, complementary Mm -hmm. with? mindfulness and cbt yeah i mean they're different 
I think of them as different ways of looking at the same problem. Mm, very well said. So they're both people who came up with mindfulness and, and cognitive behavior therapists. They're trying to help people get an understanding of, as we described earlier, your first person experience, your first person view of life. So with mindfulness, it's this practice of meditation where you're just examining your consciousness for long periods of time and it's nested within Buddhist philosophy. And in CBT, it's this mechanistic, you, you help someone describe a mechanistic relationship between their different psychological experiences. Mm. So their thoughts, their emotions, their behavior, and then on a deeper level, their beliefs. See, so if you take someone with social anxiety, you help, you help them do this diagram where they talk about their thoughts. So their thoughts might be like, people are going to judge me if I go to a party. People are going, to, people don't respect me. People don't value me. These thoughts will be running through their mind. The emotions would be anxiety, fear, sadness, things along those lines. And then their behavior will be, well, if I'm feeling anxious and I'm having these thoughts that people aren't going to like me and I'm identified with those thoughts, then why would I go to exactly. the party? So the behavior would be stay inside. But then the more you stay inside, the more this perpetuates. And then maybe on a deeper level, perhaps there's some core belief like, I'm unlovable or people just don't like yeah. me. So you see, you help people diagram this web. And for someone first hearing this, they might be like, why? <laughs> why are you doing this detailed diagram of my <laughs> suffering? Well, the point is that then you can change it. And with the thoughts, you can choose to at least, as you become aware of them, you can at least choose to not accept them. You can realize that the thoughts are separate from mm. you. They, they're, not, they, they're not you. Your emotions, similarly, although they're hard to change in the moment, you can choose to like triage them, as I said, not necessarily give them so much weight. Yeah. And your behavior, you can change big time. And that's what CBT obviously will have a big emphasis on. Definitely changing thoughts, but also changing your behavior and also taking you step by step. That's really what's valuable about a lot of psychotherapy yeah. when it comes to behavioral stuff. Can be very, it can be very powerful because it'll get you to do things in a very graded way. So if you have social anxiety, it will get you to talk to like one person first and then two people. So you get really, really comfortable step by step and you accumulate those small wins. And those small wins then change your emotions and change your thoughts. Mm. And that way you're turning a negative spiral into a positive spiral. Mm. And incidentally, I have heard that there is a possible link between the originators of CBT and Buddhism and I think the idea, I, I hope I don't butcher this, the idea is that CB, the people who came up with CBT were influenced by Stoic philosophers. Mm. And Stoic philosophers may have been influenced by people who came from countries where Buddhism was prominent. Wow. So there is a possible very distant link between between Buddhism and CBT, although I'm not 100% sure about that. Wow. Uh, I think it was Aaron Beck founded Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, right? But although mm -hmm. I think there was someone else before him, mm -hmm. I think was his name, not Albert Ellis. Maybe it was Albert Ellis. So I'm curious now. Albert Ellis was a rational, rational emotive therapy. I yes, think. yes, correct. Which I'm sure, which I'm sure was an influence. Mm, exactly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's so interesting. I never really thought about that. But another very interesting thing you mentioned previously was something about mindfulness is something that you can always come back to in the present moment. And for someone who has road rage, mm -hmm. that sentence seems, um, <laughs> that sentence seems very intriguing. 
how do mm-hmm. I mean, we all get angry, right? It's, it's a natural part of being human. But have you ever experienced mindfulness in a state of anger? And if yes, how do you get to that state of calm? Um, I know things like naming emotions is a very, is mm-hmm. a mindful technique that really helps you calm down. But is there, is there, I mean, maybe the answer is no for you. You've never had such an experience, but I'm curious to know if you have. Yeah, I have those experiences all the time when I'm basically overly, I mean, overly emotional, maybe is a bit stigmatizing. I'm emotional to the degree I don't want mm-hmm. to be an, a bad, a negative emotion, like, sadness or anger or something like that or anxiety and then i use mindfulness to get out of that but it's how you do it is simply by developing your practice as robustly as possible Mm. it's a bit like i don't know if this is going to age me but do you remember the born identity movie where (laughs) matt damon is has amnesia Mm -hmm. and he's like a secret agent but doesn't know he's a secret agent so he's not consciously aware of Mm -hmm. it but as soon as people start trying to attack him, he knows all the moves and he knows exactly what to do. Mindfulness is the same, mm. right? If you practice regularly for for decent periods of time, you're just building in this software in your mind automatically that clicks on if you are experiencing something you, you don't particularly want to be, ex- to be experiencing. Yeah. And that could be anger in a road rage situation, or it could be, a, a path of, of thought, like remembering that argument from five years ago mm-hmm. and you and you can waste hours and hours just ruminating about things like that. So whatever the experience is, the more you practice, the more you're going the more likely it is that at some point something will bubble up where it's like, oh well, I'm trapped in a thought loop right yeah. now. Or oh wow, I'm angry. I don't particularly want to be angry. It might not stop it from starting, so you might be in the road rage incident and you might get angry, but it does dramatically shorten the amount of time you're likely to stay angry Mm. because you just, you've trained your mind to become aware of the different states that you fluctuate through. And then once you've trained that awareness, then you have a lot more choice. You have a lot more choicefulness in what state of mind you want to occupy it's not perfect you know but it's definitely something that you can train it's kind of what i referred to earlier which is it's a a training to be non-judgmental to your immediate experience so rather than if you have an experience of road rage for instance road rage is a really good example Mm. actually because it's a really good example of an event where something happens to you where you can immediately transpose a, a fictional narrative on the event about how the other person is a terrible person and you're a helpless victim and it is just another injustice (laughs) in your life. But if someone, for example, cuts you off in traffic, you have no idea why they cut you off, who that person is, Mm. what's on their mind. And it's very likely that learning about that would dramatically change your interpretation of the event. Yeah. And it's really a situation in road rage. People tend to be hyper-aroused because they're traveling very fast. So it's also another instance where people, where a lack of self-awareness contributes because people aren't aware that when you're driving actually it's 80 miles an hour or whatever, you're, you're much more tense. So your threshold to get angry is actually a lot lower than it would be if you were just in a normal situation. So yeah, I, I find it helps enormously. To answer your question more briefly, because that was quite a long answer, <laughs> It is 
really a question of robust practice and it often clicks on without you having to become aware of it like any good training right, would right. like if you train to drive a car you're not thinking about every aspect of driving a car if you train to practice medicine same thing it's most it's mostly going to become yeah unconscious wow Th- thank you for that um i yeah you put it so beautifully and and made me realize how um unaware i am of myself on the road um so yeah th- thank you for that and i think a lot of people could apply it in different contexts and and put it into perspective for themselves but it got me thinking about something else about again what being mindful is and i think for me the only time i could mm-hmm. say that i'm mindful is when i'm walking or exercising um especially exercising because mm-hmm. it soothes my mind you really focus on the present moment um and i think when we move our bodies in such like in resistant training you're much more aware and more present what are your thoughts on like different contexts mm-hmm. of mindfulness do you think to actually achieve the sort of mindfulness where for example situations like road rage won't impact you would need would need to be done um like sitting down and practicing like meditation or exercising and you know you know that kind of mindfulness or do you think mindfulness is also just being present but through different forms of actions like like i said walking and exercising and etc i think that's a really good question i would say firstly any activity which engages you with present reality and i, I think later we'll talk about reality versus fantasies that's a whole yeah. other area but i think any activity which engages you in the present present reality is a good idea but then depending on that activity it may or may not confer the benefits of mm. mindfulness meditation mm. so if you're being very present while lifting weights that's obviously a very good thing it will i think provide a lot of the calming anxiety reducing aspects of mindfulness obviously it means you're going to be lifting weights better obviously it means you're going to be less likely to get injured and it's going to be a distraction from your everyday nonsense that's bubbling around yeah. in your head so all of that's really good what what i think it wouldn't help with it wouldn't help you understand the nature of your mind the way pure mm. mindfulness meditation does the way the spontaneous arising of thoughts and emotions the way those link up the the introspective value of learning about yourself or what are the kind of emotions i tend to have what are the kind of what are the, what's the quality of the thoughts i have what's the what's the theme often it's like a theme so so those aspects i think are less prevalent mm-hmm. if you if you're doing another activity as well as some of the other insights like being able to access that calm without needing anything without needing even an activity to do but really just focusing mm-hmm. on what we would normally think of as very boring mm-hmm. still still allowing you to access a state of calm or or bliss yeah but i think i think so i think there are definitely some benefits to present focused activities but then there'll be some stuff specifically about the nature of mind which it will be difficult to ascertain without without mindfulness meditation itself i think wow the the, the only the other thing i'd add is you can you can do mindfulness while walking and i have done that and i think that can basically confer the same benefits mm. as long as you know what you're doing and really in that instance you're paying attention to your walking with the same level of attention as you might pay to your breath if you were sitting and not not doing anything 
Yeah, wow. Once again, very beautifully said. Mm. It, it, it's absolutely true. There is a level of mindfulness that things like exercising or some form of activity helping you be present can give you, but it won't be that same form of mindfulness you know, that mm-hmm. you could access instantly. And speaking of breathing, um, how important do you think breathing is? Um, is that also something that you personally do, like mindful breathing? Because I've read, once again, mixed mixed comments on on what different you know practitioners or experts think about breathing uh for mindfulness i've used breathing as an object of meditation and mindfulness it's very commonly used that way Uh, i wouldn't say i've engaged in breath work practice per se and it's something that a lot of people again who i respect have talked about Mm. but it's not something i've personally investigated So it's not something I feel I can talk about with a lot of confidence. The only thing I would say is that I have learned from a kind of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, which Mm -hmm. incidentally uses mindfulness a lot. You can use a technique called paced breathing to slow down your, to to make you less anxious. So have you ever heard of those studies that when you smile, you kind of feel happier? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a reverse engineering. You you do something with your body and your mind is often taking cues about from, from your body about what to think or feel, which is why, for example, if we take our socially anxious person and get him to go to the party, changing his behavior, his mind is going to be like, oh, well, the party clearly isn't that scary <laughs> because he's going and in time the anxiety will drop. So your mind is taking cues about what you do so similarly, if you breathe very slowly, your mind is going to take use that, oh, clearly he's not in a fear-provoking environment. Right. Otherwise, why would he be breathing so slowly? So you can do something in DBT. We do paced breathing, which is you take a, a breath and take it very slowly over, let's say, three or four seconds, and then not breathe for three or four seconds, and then exhale for three or four seconds, and then not breathe for three or four seconds. I think that's also referred to as box breathing, mm. and that's, that helps anxiety a lot yeah that's amazing um like you said it's about signaling your brain that you're not in danger right Uh, because when we're Mm -hmm. socially anxious or just anxious in general our brain we're telling ourselves you know that that we're in danger in in whatever form it is our brain doesn't know the context right um but let's actually talk about therapies now uh since since we're on the topic what is mindfulness-based therapy. And then I also know there's mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was founded by John Kabat-Zinn. So is this the same thing or would you say they're they're different? In terms of seeing mindfulness in the practice of therapy, my my experience is primarily with practical behavior therapy, mm-hmm. DBT, of which mindfulness is one of the three pillars of DBT. It's like mindfulness, emotional regulation and interpersonal effectiveness. Um, I'm aware of the the other two, so mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness therapy. Mm -hmm. I think essentially all of those therapies converge around the same idea, which is combining mindfulness practice, as we described, with more cognitive behavioral theories about how the mind works and about how people can be taught about their mental processes and how to change them. Yeah. So the combination of those two things 
across you know a series of of different patient contacts to try and achieve some kind of results and that that result might be improving mood if they're depressed or reducing anxiety if they're anxious or a combination of both or 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 you know whatever issue the the client is presenting with i would say mindfulness is more applicable to some kinds of problems than others mm-hmm. so mindfulness i think has been demonstrated to be particularly effective for things like anxiety and depression mm-hmm. but actually not so effective for things like panic attacks mm. not so effective for things like obsessive compulsive disorder although it is said uh, i was talking to professor david veal recently who who treats a lot of people with obsessive compulsive disorder and he says the the mindfulness philosophy is really important but it's just very hard to actually practice um certainly if you have conditions like psychosis you know mindfulness isn't necessarily recommended so it really depends on on the condition but it, essentially it revolves around using mindfulness practice and mindfulness theory combined with cognitive behavioral theory to achieve some kind of some kind of result mm. yeah that's interesting that you said that um because i was while i asked that i was also thinking to say do you think it's something that's for everyone and then you answered saying that you know it it actually doesn't work for mm. everyone but i do wonder for those people who for example do want to meditate or you know practice this but are, but are like not sure where to start how how would you say that they can go about it do you think it's maybe doing short intervals at first or researching about it um i don't know based on your personal experience yeah whenever i'm trying to get someone or myself to try something new mm-hmm. i always advise doing something like actually doing something rather than research ideally mm-hmm. and then make it as easy as possible to execute and then doing it enough so that you can achieve some kind of result and the result doesn't have to be positive or negative but just a result so when i started meditating i did 10 minutes a day for like 2 weeks and i just committed i said i'll do 10 minutes a day for 2 weeks mm-hmm. not be particularly attached to any outcome if there are positive benefits that would be great if it's more negative than positive that's fine too i've learned something anyway and so i i'd like to encourage especially my therapy clients kind of an experimental attitude towards life like one of the kinds of therapy i study is gestalt which encourages mm. very much a here and now experimental attitude i think that's very important because nowadays there's so much information available to us that we spend all our time thinking about doing something yeah. and not actually doing anything like dating has become sitting on your couch looking at a dating app <laughs> or a career has become reading rather than actually doing something mm. and there's a tremendous amount you can learn by engaging in an activity that you never would have even thought was possible and instead because modern society allows us to be very insulated from actually trying to do new things and take risks we can get lost in this like prison of thought where um i've actually seen people who have tricked themselves into thinking they know the outcome of every possible course of action they wow. could take so they think oh i i can't do this because then this will happen and i can't do this and this will happen but 
if you talk to anyone who tries new things regularly, they'll know they'll have a they'll have much more humility mm. about what is actually possible or not. They'll have much more humility about their ignorance actually about what can happen if you dare to try new things. Sorry, that's a really long answer again. But so the, oh no, it's so great. sure make it easy. Make make it easy, but make it enough so that you can achieve some kind of that you can then scrutinize and decide. You know, is this for me or not? I don't think meditation is for everyone. Actually, I think some kind of introspective practice anyone can benefit from. Mm. And if you try meditation and you like it and you you can see some benefits, then by all means go deeper. If you try it and and you feel actually it's not for you, then you can try something else. But Little, these little experiments can be very informative. I really like when you when you talked about detachment, and I read somewhere I don't remember who said this, but uh, they said something along the lines of to be less attached and more connected. And I really like that because mm. a lot of the times we get too attached to things, whether they're thoughts or incidents or you know material things, but we're less connected. Um, in the present moment. So mm-hmm. I, I really love that quote and I, I always try to to live by it. And I sometimes think age also, or maybe not, but I feel age also makes a big difference in how mindful and self-aware we are. I don't know if this is true, but I do think mindfulness and self-awareness go hand in hand because there are a lot of things that I look back on when I was younger. And I think even when, for example, you're in a relationship, the way you deal with certain things, you think of it in a more egocentric form. It's all about you, 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 but now you see other people's actions more of them. And that is you being more mindful of not only yourself, but Mm -hmm. the other person. I think it's part of the, it's part of the whole project of Mm self-awareness. For me, for me, meditation is part of the project of self-awareness. And once you find out a little bit about how your mind works, the beauty is you get to have an insight into how other people's minds work as well, which is very helpful. And like you say, a big thing about relationships, friendships, family, romantic relationships, is not taking things yeah. personally, too personally, and not making unforced errors because you're reactive mm. and because you feel a certain emotion in the moment. That's huge. And I think... I don't think everyone develops more self-awareness with age, but I think age gives you the opportunity to develop more self-awareness simply because you have more time and you have more experiences in your life. You can reference and draw patterns. You've had more sort of collisions with reality that you can learn from. So definitely, I, I do think mindfulness meditation is hugely about hugely about self-awareness yeah as the final two questions uh i am conscious of time what are some of the things that people can do maybe it's you know headspace was one of the apps that you recommended and then you said something like box box breathing but is there anything else maybe that you would like to add for someone who's listened to this and thought hey you know what especially myself right now after our conversation um i want to go back and maybe do like four times a week, um, a, a guided meditation or something. So that would mm-hmm. be my first question. What are some of the things that um, people can do to start being a little bit more mindful? And then the second one is, who is one person, if there was anyone that impacted or just had a strong impact on mindfulness on you? Okay, so the first question is, let's say you've heard this conversation and you think, 
maybe I'm willing to give this a try. How might I go about it? It'll depend on your circumstances, I suppose. There's loads of stuff on on YouTube that's free in terms of free mindfulness meditation. It should not be an expense. I mean, if you want the really brief version, simply spending five minutes focusing on your breath, Mm. allowing yourself to get distracted, paying attention to what distracts Mm. you, and then going back to your breath. That that's like the essence. That's a, so if you spend five minutes a day just doing what I described, yeah. that's already a start. Obviously, then there's more to unpack. So that I would say if you don't have a lot of money to spend, free stuff on YouTube, there's loads. If you're thinking about an app, Headspace is a really good introduction and can really deliver. I think the strength of Headspace is it delivers things in a very clear, simple way that, that anyone can yeah. access. If you're more interested in the general philosophy um, that that meditation is nested within, then probably the waking up by by Sam Harris is really good, and that's the one I use. So that's it's really not only is it good for meditation practice, but it really keeps the bigger picture of the project in mind, and again, how to think of life in a more general way as well. The other thing is, of course, just finding an activity like you said, which anchors you to the present. So if you feel, I don't even want to try and meditate, find something that you can do. That's when you're doing it, you're totally absorbed in it. That's so that's so helpful. It might not be a meditative yeah. state. It might be more of what we call a flow state. Mm-hmm. Flow state being when you're engaged in a challenge that's just difficult enough to excite you, but just easy enough that you can actually do it. That's a great experience as well. And as we described earlier, it can take you out of your everyday troubles you know in a big way in terms of people who have influenced me about meditative practice there's been a few i think one people might not be super familiar with in the mental health space is ramdas oh, are you familiar with absolutely Ram love ramdas it's just interesting because he started as a psychologist yeah at harvard very much preoccupied by the material and the things that we tend to value in the in the west and then his catalyst for thinking about things in a different way was actually psychedelics which was and he was involved with timothy leary who was at harvard at that time and part of the counterculture movement in the states and what psychedelics sort of opened up for him was the possibility that actually we can occupy very different states of consciousness than we're used to and psychedelics are often a catalyst for people to go on a more spiritual journey and then try different things like meditation. Yeah. He eventually went to India and got a guru and then embarked on decades of meditative practice and then felt that psychedelics actually were limited in their usefulness because of their the exotic nature of the experiences they produced and actually if you actually want to live a higher quality everyday life, mindfulness is always available for you and it's just much it's a much more sustainable option, which I which I tend to agree with. And he has loads of he's he's passed away now, but yeah, he, you can find all of his lectures on Spotify. I think there's a podcast called the Ramdas Podcast where you just find all lectures, and it's just I like to listen to them because they're a very. I I, I was raised Catholic, mm. and uh, I used to go to mass every Sunday, and now this is kind of my replacement. <laughs> for that it's kind of 
okay, the nonsense of the week has passed, the the things that I've become upset about, anxious about, gleefully, egoically mm. overjoyed about, those are past and it's kind of a it's kind of a bird's eye view on on things which can be very, very calming, I I think. I'm assuming if you're a fan of Ramdas, you're probably a fan of Alan Watts too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Although Alan Watts is an interesting case because a lot of what he says is absolutely fascinating and helps me think about things in a different way. Mm. And it's just interesting to know that in in the end he uh, died because of alcohol-related problems and had an alcohol dependency problem. Yeah. And it's interesting to note how you can have, and this is, I guess, part of the tragedy of being human. human. Yeah. You know, we all have our vices, but it's interesting to know how you can have such a intellectual, spiritual, if you like, insights, but then still succumb to the things that compel us maybe on a more base level. But certainly I've gotten a lot from things that he said. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm not sure if it was Freud who was, I think, a coke addict as well. And it, I mean, it's not really on the same same thing, mm-hmm. but more or less it is because they have this whole vast world of intellect into consciousness and and yeah. but then you know but yeah it's it, like you said it's the complex nature of of being human and i think ramdas he he said something so beautiful mm-hmm. about like finding our true self is about going on a path that you have to tread but the path doesn't actually lead you anywhere it's just about becoming more here and being more mm. present in the moment and i really do love that although we're always in a search of our true self, the search is actually mm-hmm. in in the present moment. Yeah, I mean that's one of the biggest things you learn from meditation is that you're most of the time your mind is engaged with one of two fictions, which is the the, the future or the past. Mm. Now, obviously, the past has happened; the future is still unfolding, and that's why they're fictional. And and also the way you view the past, you view the past in a fictional way because we extract what we extract certain aspects of our past and completely discard or distort other aspects. And so I think what Ram Das is saying is the, the ultimate reality orientation is to be in the present because everything else is, is to some extent, a fictional narrative. And I think that leads nicely to hopefully our next conversation, which will be on reality versus fantasy. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, me too. Well, Dr. Kermi, I'd like to thank you very, very much for this wonderful discussion with you and for your time. I sincerely enjoyed it, and I'm really sure that our listeners did too. Thank you. I hope it was helpful. Um, incidentally, if you want to learn more about stuff along these lines, along these lines, yeah, I have a podcast, the Morsi Learning Podcast, where we talk about biology, psychology, and some of the social aspects of mental health and psychology but and also self-development as well so if you like this kind of content do check that out absolutely i was going to link your podcast on the description box below for this episode so definitely please make sure to check it out thank you guys once again for tuning in and listening as always please do share this episode with your friends and family if you're interested in mindfulness and do check out the Mosley learning podcast as well we'll catch you guys in the next episode